0: This is a podcast from Three RRR, one hundred and two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Good morning. You're listening to Radio Therapy, and if um, you haven't set your clock forward by an hour, you're actually listening to Radio Marinara. Um, it is actually Radio Therapy. It's ten am. Triple R. Doctor Autonomy is unwell, so I've taken the chance to uh, to do a bit of a coup, a bit of a triple R coup, and I've taken over you listening to Lolly Doc. We're in the studio with Miss Medic and Malice, and we've got some fantastic guests on today's show. We've got a bit of a theme. Um, we're talking to Anthea Rhodes about uh, Australian Kids Health Poll and Jeff Robinson about uh, the Victorian Poisons and Information Centre. Uh, you are probably recovering from... The grand final, no doubt, Miss medic Oh,
2: can you tell? Yeah, I am Such tell. a footy head.
1: You are. Yeah. yeah, you've got you've got mixed scarves on. You've got a beanie on. I know, you're I all know. a bit Western I've suburbs. Got,
2: yeah, I've got my bulldog out in the green room. Can't help it. Although, do you know what? I'm just relieved that you weren't going to make us talk about fish and all things Radio Marinara. Cause I know. It freaked me out for a second.
1: I know. It's 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 a bizarre thing. I'm losing an hour somewhere. It's a it's a weird thing. Daylight savings. I'm sure we can do a show about melatonin and circadian rhythms. And...
2: It's worse for the people that have small children. They are all freaking out right now about when to put their child down for a nap and how they're going to manage bedtime. I mean, it's just a minefield. Which is you a crazy thing. kind of work thing. yourself up to this. No,
1: I but kids get up when they get up, don't they? My kids just get up at... Five, no matter whether it's daylight savings or not
2: Yeah, well, some of them will then You know, get up at four instead So it's, uh, yeah, it it can be A a time that's very fraught for parents So I'm thinking of you all parents
1: out there That's what I said, our biggest kid in the room, Malice How are you? How was your week?
0: Oh, look, what can you say after a 60-odd Year drought and a, A grand final victory I mean, as I was saying earlier This restores faith in faith Because, strictly speaking, logically If you follow a team And decade after decade, there's no success. And not only no success, but getting into the preliminaries year after year after year and not success. What else keeps you going except faith? And then finally, the cycle comes around. I mean, this is an inspirational story for for everyone. And I think then uh, Beveridge, the coach, the gesture of handing over his medal, to the captain. I mean, you know, these are just moments that get ingrained in your mind as humanity at its best. So
1: it's amazing that uh, a sporting event can have such ramifications for the community at large because there's no doubt that this week the football has completely changed conversation in the media, Um, not just about uh, football but about health and about uh, relationships uh, about people's journeys, in, you know, with injury and things like that and how they've, they've managed those. So I, I find that fascinating. I think it's an interesting kind of time of year.
0: Well, it's one of those moments, you know, where people talk about many things being religion, and in Australia, sports certainly has got the quality of religious uh, fervour. And one of the experiences of religion and indeed sports is it takes you beyond your own self. And when you've got a team sport and a community-based team sport, as football is, because it involves not just the players, not just the the, uh, officials and coaches, but the whole community that gives rise to the team and then the followers generation after generation uh, the, during the week there were uh, stories of people one particularly struck me who was born on the day of the last grand final that the bulldogs were in and she said now she's in her 60s that this is the first time she's celebrating her true birthday in as a stars aligned as it were you know her, her birthday in the, the grand final day coming together i mean who it could? It's it's fictional almost, were not true.
1: We've got a big show coming up over the next uh, few next hour, and you're listening to Radio Therapy. We'll be back with a bit of catch up and our first segment.
3: Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
1: Miss Medic, you have some delicious catch up for us. Something about acne.
2: Yeah, I liked this because it gives some hope to all those teenagers out there that are really frustrated by having a face full of pimples. It can be a really hard thing to go through as a teenager. But there is some good news out there. So a group of scientists have found that people with acne seem to be protected um, ...against signs of ageing later in life. Wow. So those that have lots of acne when they're teenagers, when they get to sort of, you know, middle age and beyond, they seem to have much more youthful-looking skin. So that's some good news.
1: That is good news. Do we know why?
2: Well, yeah, it all comes down to the length of your telomeres.
1: Oh, so the oh, telomeres, of of course, Yeah, I yeah. yeah. love it those it telomeres.
2: <laughs> they're awesome. So no, telomeres, <laughs> if you don't know, are the little caps at the end of our chromosomes... And it seems to be the the long the longer your chromosome the longer the telomeres on the chromosomes the uh, the less likely you are to be subjected to the effects of aging. So having good long telomeres is great, and it's been found that these people with acne are more likely to have longer telomeres.
1: So, the myth that size doesn't matter has just been <laughs> dispelled. Oh, <in> I <laughs> knew you
2: were going to oh, go so there. So, it was I
0: there. I can yeah. see it. Is I was just glimmer? about to also ask, how do you lengthen your telomeres? <laughs>
2: well, I guess the most important thing is how you don't shorten them. So, oh, right. things that shorten your telomeres are being obese and smoking oh. and things like that. Right. So... I mean, there is an enzyme called telomerase which helps keep the telomeres nice and long. And as soon as they can bottle that, I'll be signing up for it. Like wow! A, yeah, it almost it sounds like telomeres
1: die. are like the buffer for your your chromosomes. Yeah, so that's they kind right. of protect the outside of it, so that when there's damage to your chromosome, it, it affects the telomeres first. That's before right. They, yeah. Know.
2: So they talk about it being like, um, you know, like the little. Hard bits at the end of shoelaces, yeah, so okay. like while they're there, it stops the fraying and everything happening to your, uh, to your shoelaces or your chromosomes.
1: Oh, that's fascinating! Yeah. So, pimple it up, teenagers. Yeah, well, you know,
2: it doesn't mean you can't have treatment for your for your acne. Um, that you know, you, you can still do that, but yeah, it's something to just say. You know, it's a little silver lining.
1: That's fantastic. Now, Malice, you speaking of, uh, I guess looking after yourself you've got uh, some interesting self-care uh, news
0: well yes with the telomeres in neuroscience uh, eventually it had to happen that we have to revisit a quality of the relationships we have both in social intimate family life as well as in professional life what is the impact of the relationships that we have on our own trauma and stress And so there's always been lip service to self-care in therapy. It's one of those things that you find in the appendix of a book or the last chapter and the last paragraph. And by the way, self-care for the therapist is very important to deliver the best sort of care for the patient. Now, it's an afterthought and a gesture of lip service. However, with neuroscience, uh, we actually have to put it at the introduction of our books and our introduction of our uh, therapy and our treatment. The basic reason is if we don't, we will have burnout. And burnout is a very costly, both financially and emotionally, a very costly side effect or indeed direct effect that all in the helping professions, this is physical medicine, mental health, general practice, the whole works. Because we are in relationships with distressed people, people who are going through grief, losses, divorce, injuries, surgery, Death, suicide, murder, accidents. I mean, the list goes on and on. Wow. Who yep. wants our job? Good. Who do they come to? Who do they come to? They come to the so-called helping profession for care. Now, what happens to the helping profession? Who cares for them? And this is no longer just a lighthearted question. It's actually the essence of trying to recognise and then prevent Burnout. Now, in the past, the sort of homespun wisdom was macro care. That is, that you balance life and work. And that you go on plenty of holidays, you live a, a full life, you have a life outside of your work, which is all very interesting and a bit useless for the moment that you're in the consulting room or in the emergency clinic. I've course. always found
1: that the the concept of life-work balance, a bizarre concept, yeah. because it's, it implies that somehow work is not part of life. That's right. Which is it's just a bizarre thing, don't
0: you think? Well, especially as a, a, an affirmed workaholic, I don't even know what it means. Yeah. To have balance? I mean, it's like balanced drinking. What's that saying that... Yeah.
1: <laughs> Do a, do a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That's right, right? except yep.
0: you'll burn out in your 30s or 40s, you'll get pimples, your telomeres will drop sure. off.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: and So the question is, where where to now with neuroscience? And where to now is called micro self-care. So rather than work-life balance, the grand big picture, you can actually now do things within the consulting room in five to ten seconds. Provided you recognise you're on the edge of micro-burnout, that is in the session, the signs are when you start to drift off and you daydream or you start losing your orientation and that sharpness of mind. Or at the serious end, you say things to yourself when you say counselling, like, come on, get a hold of yourself, get on with life, can't you pull yourself together? You know, they're signals that you are in distress beyond your therapeutic limits. So what do you do once you recognise that? Hopefully you don't enact that and say those words (laughs) to your patient. That would be more than unethical. It's totally destructive. But if you don't attend to yourself, it's destructive to you. So what can you do? So first point is, can we just get rid of the myths? Paying self-care attention is not selfish. It is not wussy and weak, and it is not a sign that you are a hopeless therapist or, or medic. It is actually that you're sensitive to what's going on. And if you're sensitive to yourself, it will flow on to being sensitive to your client patient. If you're ruthless with yourself that will flow on so if for no other reason you want to deliver the best sort of care for your clients and patients then do the self-care for their sake mm. so this is the self-care for you as a professional if you're a little bit more tolerant and compassionate towards yourself you can do it because of your own well-being is at stake And you have to be there for decade after decade for your therapist. You don't want to drop dead at 40. So what do you do? Now, this is really going to sound so simple, but it is the manual override of stress. And we know it from mindfulness and yoga and exercise. Pay attention to your breath. Now, the breath is obviously an automatic response of breathing. The manual override is when you find yourself drifting off, you say, this is a sign that my system is out of whack. What do you do when you deeply breathe? You actually turn on your parasympathetic nervous system. Now, that's a big word. What it means is that you're in stress. It's you're in adrenaline sympathetic overdrive. So what do you do? You put the brakes on. What are the breaks? It's the parasympathetic. For those who are physiologically inclined, the reason is very simple. When you go into stress, shallow breathing, your carbon dioxide accumulates in your lung. You get acidic uh, blood chemistry. Therefore, if you breathe slowly and deeply, and the trick here is to exhale slowly, you're blowing off carbon dioxide. Therefore, you redistribute the equilibrium of your acid base and you go alkaline, which is parasympathetic calm now this is the basic essence of micro self-care you can go a step further if you like and you pay attention to your posture your posture also alters this by stress because you get into fight flight postures you hunch your back you you clench your fists your jaws and that really uses up an incredible amount of adrenaline so if you go sit back uh, adopt as it were the anatomical posture of relaxation your muscles will send messages back to your brain that you're not not under threat your life is actually safe and this is the essence of the whole turnaround of self-care is to restore the sense of safety for yourself and then you will model the sense of safety for your patient
1: my uh my smart watch now tells <laughs> me tells me to breathe so I've had a, a software update just recently and every kind of few hours it tells me to, to breathe and one of the first things that I did was change the five-minute settings. so it asked you to breathe for five minutes. I turned that down to one minute because I didn't have time to breathe for five minutes.
0: <laughs> and so can I just ask, what, what is it that triggers your watch to give you the signal? Oh, I have no idea. I have
1: no <laughs> idea, but it knows. It knows. Three triple R. You're in the studio with um, Malice, Miss Medic, Wally Doc, and we have our very, very first special guest, Miss Medic.
2: So, we are lucky enough to have Dr. Anthea Rhodes in to speak with us today. Anthea is a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and director of the Australian Child Health Poll. Anthea has an interest in the health needs of the vulnerable child and specialty training in immigrant health and child development and behaviour and she's also done postgraduate training in medical education and is a lecturer at the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics. So, Anthea, I want to hear all about this child's health poll. I think this is fascinating. What do parents really think and worry about when it comes to their children's health?
4: Morning, Mel. Thank you for having me here. And I'm sitting up very straight and breathing (laughs) for everyone who's already been listening this morning. After that long introduction, it makes me sound like I might know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So, um, look, the Australian Child Health Poll is a really exciting and new project running out of the children's hospital. It's a national survey, happens every 12 weeks, and we're polling parents across Australia to find out what they think about child health issues. So really looking to bring the voice of the people, if you like, the lived experiences of Australians when it comes to child health. There's lots out there from experts Healthcare providers you know systems advisors government but what do the parents think and what do people really want to see done excellent well
2: yeah i think that's amazing and we um because it is it's down to what the parents are actually doing so we know what is important and where things can change so can you tell us a little bit about some of the areas that you've polled thus far and what sort of interesting results have stuck out for you
4: sure so we've been running just on a year now so we've had four polls and over that time learnt all kinds of interesting things. I guess a good place to start would be the most recent poll which was released about eight weeks ago now and we looked at what parents are doing when it comes to giving their kids over-the-counter medicines. So it was the end of winter, lots of parents, I'm a parent myself and many people listening probably are too, had battled coughs, colds, flus and it's really hard not to be dishing stuff out to try and turn things around quickly. We know that there's quite a lot of policy and guideline around what's appropriate when it comes to over-the-counter medicines. What we didn't know was really what parents are doing. And we were really surprised to learn that a third of Australian parents had given their young children, so children under six, over-the-counter cough and cold medicine in the last 12 months, even though it's very clearly against TGA guidelines because it can be quite unsafe.
2: Yeah, so that was that was really surprising to me also as a, a general practitioner to hear that, uh, that that's what parents are in fact doing. And did you learn anything about where they were getting that information from or where that was coming from that they might think that that was an appropriate um, way of managing their child's viral illness?
4: We did. So we asked parents where they'd received advice to give those young kids those products. And, in fact, looking across the table at the GP, the GPs were involved, as were other people across the healthcare providers. Um, so we saw that pharmacists, in around three quarters of cases, had actually advised families to give their young children these medicines and doctors as well about in about 60%. So I think it's an issue across the you know healthcare system. It's hard for parents and it's hard for us as healthcare providers as well that sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. And it's really hard for everyone to find that as a acceptable palatable solution when we're busy and people want something that's going to make a difference.
2: Absolutely. And look, as a general practitioner, I can imagine... I know it's actually a hard consult to explain to uh, a parent that I'm actually advising very simple things, Um, and that actually takes me more time to do that than actually to write a script of antibiotics or or to, to... would i just suggest you know something that had no evidence base so it's about us all sort of really thinking about um and changing that way that we approach viral illnesses and i think it's so interesting to know that um that this is this is so dominant this is so how many people are doing this with their children
4: yeah and i guess it extended beyond cough and cold medicine so we looked at vitamin use as well which i think is pretty interesting um Again, I guess it's part of modern day life and and parenting among that, that that people want more than just to be healthy. They kind of want health plus and they don't just want their kids to be well enough. They want to sort of protect them from getting sick. And wrapped up in all of that uh, is a lot of vitamin and mineral use that's designed or, or... perhaps marketed to boost immunity and protect your kids so we found that almost half 50 percent close to 50 percent of australian children and teenagers are taking vitamins and in the vast majority of cases there's no indication for these and they're really probably money that could be better spent elsewhere
2: yeah, and so the amount of money, how, what, what sort of money are we talking about here?
4: Yeah, so we found that um, on on vitamins and minerals, around $74 million collectively spent by Australian parents um, for those products for children under 15 years of age. So a huge amount of money.
1: I remember doing a, a talk at work, I think maybe a year and a half ago, on probiotics and um, and vitamin use and all sorts of things and, and the complementary medicines, uh, about $60 billion dollar industry worldwide I think that's extraordinary.
4: It's extraordinary and it's not to say that you know within health and wellness there isn't place and space for all kinds of things absolutely and there's there's some um, areas where different types of products can make a difference for people but for the vast majority of these things there's very little evidence base and in fact in some cases there's evidence of potential harm and so on top of the fact that it might not be doing good it could actually be harmful to kids and again it's costing a lot of money and it's not easy for parents to manage the budget these days so this could be a place where they might think about saving.
1: Anthony, uh, this has been funded by the Royal Children's Research Foundation, is that right?
4: Yeah, that's absolutely right. How
1: does an organisation like the Children's um, decide that something like this is a worthwhile exercise? Well, what's in it for them? Why, why do they do that?
4: Well, at the Royal Children's Hospital, I, I, I guess we're considered ourselves as, as leaders when it comes to child health, and having a project that looks quite uniquely at the public and parent perspective is one way that we, you know, doing something different and helping to bring the public voice to that discourse around healthcare. So we've got results that we've presented to government, and we're, you know, looking to drive change in areas where we can bring a perspective of the parent to I the think discussion. I
0: very
1: clever. It's really, really clever. It's a really nice way of, I guess, uh, driving the health conversation um, as a healthcare professional. We don't do that very often. It's amazing. Mm.
0: Malice? Given that there's no rational basis for what you're actually... Fi- the findings of uh, parents giving children their under-six-year-olds even against advice... Uh, is it worth having a look at the dimension of the parents' parenting? That is, that this is a generational effect, and no amount of education overrides family tradition.
4: Really interesting comment. So, one of the things that came out of the um, discussion when when the results around. Use of cough and cold medicines in young kids was in the media. Was that it's going to take Mm -hmm. um, parents and perhaps some healthcare providers a generation before Mm -hmm. they can change their practice around these things? And I think that's very true. You know, um, giving kids medicines is an ingrained part of parenting, and it goes back as long as we can probably Mm -hmm. track in the history books. And before cough and cold medicines, who you know, all kinds of things. So that. Desire for parents to do something, anything, yes. is really complex and it's not something that's readily sh- sort of switched off. But I guess what we can do is by bringing to the table some, you know, information about what's potentially harmful. Uh, we can at least move people away from that it's not to say can't do anything but let's try and do things that aren't going to cause harm
0: there's a wonderful uh, phrase that we use in mental health when we're going through a major change as we are which is an ethical position of do you wish to perpetuate an error yes so looking at the actual practice being damaging and not actually saying it like it is damaging, but you know, there's a bit of an error in something that's been handed down, mm. and it's a, a loyalty question because if it came from parents and grandparents and so on, but do you wish to perpetuate it, or would you like to have a choice?
4: And by by sort of accepting that there's an error, you have to acknowledge that, yes. and that you've maybe been on the receiving end of that error, and that can be a really hard. Really thing for hard. To do. Yes, yeah. but
0: at least if there's a language, then you've got a leverage. Up till then, it just slips through as perpetuating.
4: That's right. And if we keep doing it, then sometimes people think that makes it seem all right.
1: It's 10.30 on Triple R Radiotherapy. We're with Anthea Rhodes uh, from uh, the Australian Children's Health Poll.
2: Anthea, I'm just wondering about some other areas that you might have polled. and There was one of the early polls regarding what uh, are the top health concerns of, of parents. Do you want to talk a bit about that?
4: Yeah, so in our first poll we went to the public and we asked what they felt were the big health problems for children and teenagers of today and we gave them a, a list of all kinds of things that included many things that are prioritised for funding and, you know, in the um, priorities of, of the budget when it comes to health care. But what the public felt were the big problems didn't necessarily align directly with those. And what we were really struck to find that was among the top five health concerns were um, four of them were related to effectively um, lifestyle issues, so sedentary behaviour, obesity, excessive screen time, um, poor or unhealthy diet. So they were... Four of the top five problems also big in the top 10 were mental health issues bullying suicide Um, so again big problems seen by the public are those that relate to lifestyle on that list we had things like autism adhd allergies childhood cancer but those problems were not seen as big issues by the australian public when it came to thinking about child health
2: that's really interesting so in terms of what you would Potentially be able to do with that. Information? I think what's really
4: important um, from that information is when we pull back. Then we say, okay, so sixty percent of Australian pe- the Australian public told us they think excessive screen time is the biggest health problem for young people today. Where's the system to deal with this health problem? You know, where do parents go? Where do young people go? Is it a problem for GPs to deal with? Is it a problem for you know mental health? practitioners to deal with is it for pediatricians should it be dealt with through schools and yet it's a big problem that's growing rapidly and it's not something that the system's well placed to deal with at the moment
1: mm. so that's one of the advantages i can see with these polls is it preempts, um or at least helps um educate and articulate where health spending might potentially be or
4: absolutely that's one of the main objectives that we'd like to see come out of this work. I, one of the things that's really unique about the project again is that it's very um, timely. So the data collected, it's looked at, it's turned around and released all inside of a period of three months. So lots of fantastic research for lots of good reasons has a, a really significant lag time and by the time you see things published in academic journals, you know, those of us involved in research know that journey's been a couple of years trying to get the paper up and a couple of years in the field before that and when it comes to things like Child health, where children are developing and progressing quickly, and lifestyle issues like screen time. Data you collected four years ago is, you know, very quickly obsolete Mm -hmm. when it comes to to issues and how it impacts kids. So this project's bringing very current stuff to the table and um, a a way to start a discussion about it. Mm -hmm.
2: There was also a poll about uh, sources of information that parents rely on in order to. Make decisions and be informed about child's health. Uh, and I must admit, I was so relieved to see that general practitioners were up there as one of the most trusted or sought after areas. And Just, uh,
1: just after radiotherapy. Yeah, yeah, we were number one. We I were think. number one, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Thank yeah. God that Pete Evans wasn't above us. No, that, yeah. Oh. Who? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, look, I, I think that that's a really interesting thing. But what I took from that as a as a health professional is that because um, there was some comments about what are trusted sites that yeah. that that parents go to Doctor Google, but they actually don't really know. They end up being overburdened with information, can't make heads or tails of it. So what I took from that is that I really need to have the discussion with my patients about what are reputable websites and online resources to look at in regards to child health and we actually did that on one of our last radiotherapy shows talked about my uh, top five uh, websites for health information but this is a discussion that we should be having with our patients right
4: absolutely that's that's great to hear that you've brought it in and (laughs) applied the research into you know the community to drive change and and um impact on practice but that's right we found that about 60% of people when they walk in, a parent walks into your clinical consult as a general practitioner 60 percent of them will have already looked up online and come with some idea of what they think is going on with their child and, and yet, just
0: just to interrupt for a moment to underline uh, lolly doc's earlier comment that was not a joke we are trailblazing and we're just way ahead of the news yeah i didn't understand why
1: anyone was sm- laughing not, yeah, at all really, i just yeah.
0: wanted to align the truth here yeah. that <laughs> this is uh, it's it's happened it, it it's, feels it's, like
4: a room of trailblazers <laughs> <So> that <laughs> energy is here it's here I think it's because we're sitting up so straight. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but um, absolutely, people come into your clinic room, they've already been online, they've, they've got some idea of what they think's going on. Mm-hmm. Only 6% of those same people told us they trusted that information. So there's a gap there, you know, mm. they're unsure. Um, and then we also found that only about a quarter actually having a discussion in that consult about the information even though the majority of them said they would like to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So how do you navigate that? I think there's still this idea um, among parents that they feel a bit guilty that they've already Googled something and that maybe they shouldn't fess up when they see the doctor or the doctor might feel a bit like it's a secret test and someone's already checked on Google and are they going to say the same thing so finding ways to accept that this is part of the way the dialogue is going to happen now some of the consultation will happen online before you're sitting there across from a patient and putting it all on the table so that it can be you know brought together in a useful way for everyone.
1: I like it when patients actually Google before they've before I see them. It, it makes the conversation. I think it makes the conversation quite quite a lot easier for me. And it's a little bit like um, I know nothing about cars, um, so sometimes when yeah. something goes wrong with my car, I like to kind of Google and see what Absolutely. the carburetor does, yeah. and <laughs> then I can actually have a conversation with the mechanic that yeah. actually sounds reasonable. And but I'm still going to take their advice. Yes.
2: And would you tell the Are you telling the mechanic that you've already Googled it?
1: Mm, no, because then I'd look silly. See. Yeah, this exactly right. And
2: are you asking your patients have they already been online about their yeah, health I problem? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. You do. Absolutely. Perhaps I should. I'll, I, that might be something I'll take into my my professional practice. But it's a. It, I think it can be a little bit like, for a while, doctors have been like, oh, don't. Dr Google and that's just simply it's not going to happen so we need to accept that it happens
0: well and especially in adolescent psychiatry which is my area not only do uh, patients go online before or after but when I've recommended I've got a memorable moment of recommending Seroquel as a medication the patient just actually said just one moment took out the iPhone uh, Googled Seroquel and said this was a, a, an 18-year-old boy he said do you realise it crosses into the breast milk but I guess it won't affect me
4: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but absolutely and that's okay isn't it and it, it you was know? just
0: glorious that yeah. they're empowered yes. to actually realise that they can check up on you yeah. And this is going to be where trust really develops. That's
4: right. Yeah. Yep, it's about bringing it into the space, having a dialogue and going, this is how life works now. So we all need to be on the same page and then it can be productive. No Pokemon Go though preferably during <laughs> consults.
1: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. A little Pokemon Go sitting on the shoulder of your <laughs> therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see those all the time.
4: Yeah. Uh,
2: so what oh, can dear. we expect upcoming Anthea with the Child's Health Poll? What well, have we got
4: coming lips up? Lips are sealed a little bit Miss Medic so you'll have to stay tuned but the...
0: This could be a confidential studio. <laughs> no Just us. No one's yes, listening. It on. stays
4: inside the yeah, walls.
0: Yep. <laughs> what goes on AAA (laughs) (laughs)
4: stays in triple (laughs) r so the next poll will be it's about to go into the field and it'll be released the first week of december and um it'll be on the sort of cusp of school holidays and christmas um and summer so we'll be looking at something that's going to be topical and relevant to that and i'd Mm -hmm. love to come back and talk to you about it
2: absolutely we'll have to get you back thank you so much my
4: pleasure fascinating stuff and so stay
2: tuned guys you'll hear lots more about the child's health poll i think it's really important information
0: triple ah.
1: i wonder when the last time alice cooper was played on triple arm <laughs> that's uh, poison by alice cooper i think that was from like 19 late 1980s
0: was, was there a decade back then?
1: There was a decade back then, before, before the intranets.
0: Oh, right. Happened. Okay. Yeah. Right. okay. Um,
1: our next guest certainly does not have poison on his venomous lips. <laughs> um, he's amazing. Jeff Robinson is the manager of the Victorian Poisons Information Centre, uh, which is located in the emergency department the Austin Hospital. And I like to think of Jeff as the pharmacist's pharmacist. He's an extremely experienced guy who's been in many tertiary institutions. He was Director of Pharmacy at Fairfield Infectious Diseases back in 1988, Mm. Jeff until 1996, and then uh, came to VPIC, which is the Victorian Poison's Information Centre, in 2002. Welcome, Jeff.
3: Thank you, Lolly Doc.
1: Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, What does VPIC do?
3: Well, um, we take calls from members of the public and health professionals on anything to do with exposures, basically. So we take calls from mums and dads whose kids have got into things at home. We take calls from uh, people who've uh, uh, made mistakes with their medicines. Or nursing homes that give the wrong medicines to the wrong patient. Uh, We get workplace exposures. uh, For example, farmers accidentally jabbing themselves with uh, sheep vaccines or whatever. Plumbers um, spraying adhesives in their eye. Uh, We get calls uh, from... um, Uh, regarding bites and stings, envenomations, snake bites uh, and snake bite calls can be from uh, ambulance officers, uh, hospital EDs or, or people who are actually bitten by a snake. Um... And uh, uh, lots of calls about deliberate self-poisonings, either from the person themselves or family members or ambulance officers or triage nurses, ICU doctors. So we get about 40,000 calls a year. Wow. And um, <clears throat> as you said, we're based at the um, emergency department at the Austin Hospital. Uh, we're one of four poison centres around the country. Uh, there's a poison centre in Perth, uh, one in Sydney, one in Brisbane, and ourselves here at, in Melbourne,
1: which is the best poison centre, of, of course. course. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's that's over a hundred calls a day. Yeah, with a an extremely wide knowledge base required. Um, so I understand that the people who answer the calls are called spies. Yes, that, that's right?
3: correct. We're specialists in poisons information. Uh, we're the team I've got. Are, we're all experienced pharmacists, and we have. Uh, um, uh, access to a lot of different databases either databases that tell us what's in particular products or databases that can help us if we don't know off our head databases that can help us in the um, clinical management of of poison patients
1: and what are the common phone calls you get sorry what are the f- common phone calls you get oh we're, we're look,
3: looking... uh, uh, as you'd expect uh, in the home situation kids once they get once they become mobile, they get into everything. So between the ages of one and three, we get a lot of calls from parents and grandparents with kids getting into sink uh, detergent or nappy change cream or they get into grandma's handbag and take some of her medicines. Um, fortunately, uh, I was looking at the data the other day, about 85% of the calls we get regarding children can be managed at home. Uh, so, you know, kids swallowing a bit of sink detergent, for example, uh, they'll get a bit of diarrhoea, but they don't need a trip to the GP or hospital or anything mm. like that. And, and in fact, one of our important jobs at the Poison Centre is to keep people away from GPs and hospitals if they don't need to be there. And we we often have three way conversations with uh, the ambulance. Uh, it might be a, an 18-month-old child that swallows uh, a bit of sink uh, detergent. They're coughing and spluttering. Uh, the parents panic. They ring Triple O, wanting an ambulance. And the ambulance dispatcher will often ring us, and then we can have a three-way conversation: the parent, the ambulance dispatcher, and ourselves at the poison centre. And uh, we can we can reassure the parents, tell them what to do, uh, and nip in the bud before it escalates into an unnecessary ambulance call-out. a
1: fantastic, yeah. fantastic so, service.
3: Um, you know, we... Um, that's an important aspect of our service to... To keep people out of hospitals and away from GPs when they don't need to mm. be there.
1: There's another concept and another important role that you guys do, which is a thing called toxicovigilance, which yes, is a really fancy yeah, word. Yeah. I've got no idea what it means, but I thought I'd just <laughs> use it at 10:48 <laughs> on Triple R Radiotherapy. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that, Jeff. So you, we do see a lot of new street yeah, drugs, don't yeah,
3: we? We we do, Pascal. And um, thing that we're getting, uh, in, you've probably been aware recently of a lot of publicity about kids swallowing button batteries mm-hmm. and there's been a few deaths around the country. Uh, we're just close to joining the other poison centres in uh, doing some detailed toxico-vigilance where if we get any calls from parents whose kids have swallowed a button battery we can then uh, do follow-up phone calls to ask them detailed questions about the circumstances and getting that evidence and that data will they'll then help inform uh, manufacturers, you know, in terms of packaging requirements for button batteries and et cetera, et cetera. And that's a recent example. Another good example I, I like to give is a couple of years ago when synthetic cannabinoids first became available, uh, we uh, picked up at the poison centre, we had a run of calls from, I think it was down Monash or Danineon Norway where... We had a, a number of patients who'd been using synthetic cannabinoids and developed a, a really bizarre constellation of symptoms. Are all very unwell, required ICU admission uh, for a couple of days, and the spectrum of toxicity we were seeing they didn't match normal cannabis THC. So we were able to get more information and, and realize that there was a uh, these people were starting to use these synthetic cannabinoids which we hadn't really come across before and we were able to then alert the health department who put out an advisory to GPs and hospital EDs alerting them to the fact that these synthetic cannabinoids were starting to become available and, and uh, um, alerting to, to the toxidrome that they might see in these patients. Mm-hmm. So that's the, what we mean by toxico vigilance where we're watching uh, and trying to uh, identify new trends and then using that information to feed onto the it's a little. People. It's
1: a little bit uh, analogous to like the CDC looking at infectious diseases exactly. and trends in infectious diseases almost. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah really it's really important work. work. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really stayed with me probably about 15 years ago, I went to a conference and there was a mother of a child who had swallowed a detergent and the child had lost most of their esophagus. And that led to a change in the packaging of um, the the detergent. So, dishwasher, caps, dish, yeah, yeah, dishwasher. It's, yeah, so, exactly, so yes. children's safety caps, and and I thought that was a very interesting component of the work that you do as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's uh, uh, our experience can be used to inform uh, regulators and uh, manufacturers about better packaging uh, and and restrictions on chemicals and pharmaceuticals and uh, um, depending on on the risk and I guess in a nutshell that's a lot of our work is the risk assessment so if we get a call from somebody it's our our primary focus is on the risk assessment Uh, what's happened, what have they had, how much have they got any symptoms can it be managed at home do they need to go to their GP do they need to go to hospital do they need to call an ambulance, uh, or and and that's the nub of our work?
1: It's terrific work. There's a lot of um, I think overlap, uh, Anthony, with, with your work yeah. as well. Just sort of preempting well, what the trends are. I in, could relate
3: to Anthony when Anthony was talking about all the uh, the number of uh, vitamins and so on that uh, parents are giving their kids. I could relate very much to that because we get a lot of calls at the poison centre about kids getting into their Kid Smart. Yes. Well, and I their coenzyme Q ten. They're all
4: sort of, you know, fizzies, buzzies, chewies, many of them sugar coated, and so they're they're really um, some of these products are very much designed to be appealing to children and sometimes they don't want one, two or ten, they want the whole bottle. So exactly, yeah, what the implications yeah. of that are is a whole a whole other question, yeah. I get.
3: It's the I think it's the power of marketing. Absolutely. You know, which is I'm not sure how you overcome that, but uh, a lot of these things are just unnecessary. Yes. And
4: uh, Very interesting hearing you talk about, um, you know, the importance of looking at patterns for informing public health mm. measures around safety when it comes to accidental ingestion of things in kids because at least anecdotally and i'm sure there's some evidence out there as well in the vast majority of cases you know parents want to be vigilant and in fact they're very aware a lot of the time of what they should be doing when it comes to home safety but the the reality of that being consistent and happening all the time is really challenging and particularly when when kids are not just with their parents they're with their grandparents Mm. they're with other people looking after them can be really hard for that you know safety to be consistently carried out so then we need other levels of things like lids and you know bottles and it has to go to the next level to really make a difference
3: yeah yeah exactly i i I think it's fair to say the in terms of pediatric safety from poisoning uh we live in a lot safer community these days compared to say 20 or 30 years ago because these days we've got uh child resistant packaging on a lot of medicines uh there's we have better labelling on products. Yes. Uh, we have uh, more restrictions on really dangerous chemicals. For example, strychnine. You know, you can't go to Bunnings and buy strychnine, whereas 40 or 50 years ago you probably could. Yeah. Uh,
1: so it makes it very hard to kill off <laughs> your spouse these days. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, that's a whole new ballgame. Mm. But, uh, you know, and if you look at the, the data, the the actual deaths from paediatric poisoning over time have, have declined. Yeah.
1: I, it would be remiss of you, Jeff, not to ask you what the strangest phone calls you get. Because oh. there's plenty. I've, he- I've heard, I've heard you have Dr.
3: Lolly, Lolly Doc, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> Look, a good one is um, uh, we, 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 we had a call one day from somebody um, wanting to know about their Panadol ostrich. Right. And, of course, which they meant a... Panadol osteo, right. which is a st- sustained release. Form of paracetamol, they call it Patadol. Ostrich. We've had calls from people wanting to know um, whether it was safe to use Detol hand sanitizer to clean their sex toy.
1: Uh, And
3: is it? Uh, (laughs) We had to pass on that. Yeah, right.
1: Okay. There's no database Uh, for that. No database for that.
3: Uh, We've had um, calls from people wanting to know if it was, you know, how cigarettes have a a used by date or a best by date. Do they?
1: I actually didn't know that. I believe
3: they do. I'm not a smoker, but uh, we've had calls from people wanting to know if it's still safe to (laughs) smoke their cigarettes after they (laughs) use by date. Yeah, that's a worry. That's (laughs) a worry. Um, Yeah, we we had a call recently from a a lady who'd um, given her spouse an all-over body massage with baby oil, and she then proceeded to lick the baby oil off his body and she wanted to know whether she's going to get poisoned by the baby oil.
2: And hello if you're listening. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, lot, lots of interesting calls. Wow. She was worried about the overdosing on baby oil. Yeah. yeah fair, I'm not fair, sure whether, fair enough, too. Yeah, 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 well, I'm not sure whether it was the fellow's birthday or not, or Christmas, but... But uh, yeah, he, he thought it was Christmas. He yeah, w- I'm, I'm sure he did. He had a smile on his face. <laughs>
1: I'd like to thank you, Jeff um, and Anthea, for coming into the studio today. Uh, very, very interesting topics. Um, so, Jeff, if people want um, some advice for the Victorian Poisons Information Centre, they call one three one one two six. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's right. Lolly Docker uh, 24 hour a day, 7 day a week service and we've also got a website that's got interesting information about how, largely about how to prevent poisoning so it's good for parents uh, it's www.austin.org.au forward slash poisons
1: Fantastic and Anthea, people can find out more information about the polls at, at our
4: website also www.childhealthpoll.org.au
1: fantastic before we wrap up malice has some information about self-care also
0: in the spirit of follow-up if anyone's interested in the self-care for professionals the victorian transcultural mental health group is putting on a seminar on uh, october 26 so in about four weeks time and if you google them uh, the topic is trauma-informed care intervention and treatment uh, professional self-care for vicarious trauma Oh my goodness.
1: And that that we'll be talking about murder, death. So what were the what were the topics we had before?
0: Well in fact it'll be centered basically on the self-care of the professionals with breathing posture and those who don't have an Apple Watch that they can still actually register wow. their level of stress.
1: Okay, so old school breathing. It
0: really is 1980s, that pre-inter whatever you said was. There was life before then, yes.
1: Fantastic. And what and are we going to do this week with no football?
0: Well, one of the things, just for our Jewish listeners, I'd like to pass on a very, very Shana good, Tova. A, a Shana tova, which translates as a, a new year and tonight is the beginning of two days of celebration of a new year which i just heard it isn't just about newness but apparently there's a whole lot of new energy that enters the world on the new year because it's a commemoration of the celebration of the creation of the world would you believe so this ain't just one one of those new year new years this is a new beginning wow yeah so shana tova
1: shana tova um i hope autonomy is feeling better because that was hell (laughs) <laughs> um, so we look forward to her return. Um, thank you, Miss Medic, for uh, like Keep doing all the work. Entry. Yeah, absolutely. She, I've got, a, I've got a list here with with the timings, and I think I've kept a time pretty well. Although we did go like You've 40 got 24
2: s- seconds to mention the Facebook page at Triple oh. R on Demand.
1: Excellent. So but I think you just did, didn't you? Yeah.
0: I, I just couldn't imagine Dr. Autonomy bringing in spousal strychnine poisoning as one of the segues. Well, anyway. she does
1: or have her deficiencies yeah. on the
2: radio.
0: She <laughs>
1: certainly has her deficiencies, doesn't she? <laughs> uh, next up, you'll be listening to the scientists, uh, Einstein and GoGo. Uh you've been listening to Radio Therapy Triple R, thank you.
4: This has been a podcast from Free Triple R
1: 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.